who among us doesn't enjoy a good mystery? And especially when solving it means that I get to bring out my competitive side, even if it's just me against the clock, I just can't wait to uncover all the secrets. So June's Journey is a game that is completely up my alley, and I think you'll love it too. In June's Journey, a hidden object mystery game, you play as June Parker, who's on a quest to solve her sister's murder and uncover her family's many secrets. Each chapter brings you deeper into the story, and it's set in the Roaring Twenties, so beyond uncovering clues, you get to experience the glitz and glamour of the time. June's Journey is definitely not a game I play mindlessly, which I love because I get genuinely invested and a lot of it is a race against time, so there's a little fun added pressure of trying to find the clues as quickly as you can in each scene. There are also tons of ways to customize the island that you're on, learn more about the characters, and then new chapters are added weekly, so you really can't run out of things to explore. So if you think you're up to solve this case, download June's Journey for free today on iOS or Android or play on PC through Facebook games. June needs your help, detective. My name is Jenny Owen-Youngs. And I'm Kristen Russo. And together we spent six years watching every episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, one at a time, podcasting about each and every one. Our podcast is spoiler-free, so first-time viewers can listen along safely. Ever thought to yourself, I wish someone was brave enough to write an original song for every single episode of Buffy? Your search is at an end, my friend, because we did exactly that. Our podcast is called Buffering the Vampire Slayer, and you can learn more about it at bufferingcast.com. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Tegan. And I'm Madigan. And you're listening to Your Your Angry Angry Neighborhood Neighborhood Feminist. Feminist. This is a podcast where we explore the world through our own personal feminist perspectives. Yes, it is. You guys, now it's Women's History Month. It's Women's History Month. It's one after the other. And it's amazing. It's awesome. Very exciting. Love it. So um, we know we just did a black forgotten feminist faves. Yeah. But Madigan got a little excited, you guys. That's okay. Madigan texted me and was like, is it okay if we do another feminist forgotten feminist faves? And I was like, well, we did just do one. But then I was like, you know what? Clearly you're excited about somebody. <laughs> Thank you for appeasing me. Or you wouldn't have wanted to do that. Yeah. So I'm like... Because I had another idea, but then I started reading about this person. Well, I actually started reading about someone in relation to her, and then I was like, wait. If it's something you're excited about, that's always the best. I have so many, though, in my backlog, but I chose, like, the most recent one. But then as I was researching, I'm like, wait, but there was this person and that person. So I'm just, there's going to be a lot of great ones in the future. I'm so excited. you have it a lot easier than me, then, because I'm always trying to, like, dig and look for new things. I've been reading a ton of historical fiction lately. Well, awesome. Where I'm always like, who's this person based on? and things yeah. like that and it's always like some badass feminist chick and I'm like talking about Fantastic. her. Fantastic. Yes. We always like to give the disclaimer at the beginning of these episodes that we do our research but I know for the person that I am doing there were differing reports about yeah. like basic shit. Like basic shit on like uh, like different websites. So yeah. we do like to say that um, if we get anything wrong yeah. please Although people love to like say these girls do their research on the well, no, because we do on their um, reviews Reviews. for us, and I'm like, oh my god, thank you for validating. We do, we do research. We do, but like, we just know that sometimes, like, when we're talking about real people, like, we're not always going to get it right. And I know that sometimes the way that I feel, if I am listening to a podcast and they get something wrong, they've gotten something wrong, and I'm like yelling at my, you know 
car radio because mm-hmm. they've gotten something wrong and I'm like, it's this thing. Mm-hmm. So I do want to... Can you imagine if I listened to like a Judy Garland biography you of a podcast? you freak out. Yeah, exactly. Can you so imagine what I would look like? If there's anyone out there who, one of the people who we're talking about today, if you're an expert on this person and you're like, you've got that thing wrong, we know there's a possibility we could have well, gotten and we things want, wrong. And we want to know what's wrong yes. and what's right. So we please, will totally... Give that information on the next We will episode. absolutely give that information back. We will do corrections. So, um, yeah, keep that in mind. If there's anything you want to add, mm-hmm. you can always email us. We give our email address at the end of every single episode. Yeah. So feel free to email us with any corrections we might have. But with that said, Bam. I think I did a pretty good job. Okay. So, I'm sure so. you <laughs> no, always kill it. I'm ready. Okay, are you ready? I'm so ready. Okay. My so. body is ready. I am going to talk about, and this is someone I did not know about at all. Then I probably don't. Um, <laughs> Louisa Moreno. Ringing any bells? No? Okay. I don't think so. No? Okay. So, I wanted to talk about her, not her in particular necessarily, but when you said that we should do Forgotten Feminist Faves, uh-huh. I went out specifically looking for a woman of color uh-huh. who was not a black woman. Because I think I like to come at it from my own perspective, which is generally black women, and then every other woman I've done, with maybe the exception of, like, Frida Kahlo, or a couple other exceptions possibly, have been white women. Yeah. So... Well, because they overtake history so much. They overtake history, and then I go out of my way to present black women for obvious reasons, and because I think that they deserve uh, recognition, but... There are lots of other women who also de- deserve recognition in other communities. And so I, I kind of went out of my way to try and find one yeah. this time. So Tell me about Luisa. Luisa. So Luisa Moreno was born Blanca Rosa Lopez Rodriguez. <gasps> oh, sexy I know. name, child. I know. Woo! So many names. But it's all such sexy uh-huh. names. Blanca Rosa Lopez Rodriguez. Oh, same um, <laughs> and, and she was born in either 1906 or 1907. This yeah, is what I mean when I say that it's differing. I looked at several different websites to try and clarify. It's and not even that long ago, guys. Come it, on. It isn't. And some of them said 1906 and some of them said 1907. So I was unclear. So um, it was either of those. And she was born to a wealthy upper-class family in Guatemala. Okay. And uh, her family was, like, very influential. And when I say, like, upper class, I mean, like, they had, like, real, real money. They had, like, old money. High class. Yeah. She attended primary school, I think, up through what we would consider to be, like, high school in the United States, actually, in California. Okay. in, uh, In the Oakland area. And then she later returned to Guatemala, but she was unable to continue her education because women in Guatemala were not allowed to enroll in university there. So, in response to that, at, like, in her late teens, she organized a group that lobbied for women to be included in higher education. So, already, she's just like, nuh-uh, not today. Yeah. We're not doing this. Like, this well, is unfair. Well, because she had experienced a different sort of lifestyle. Right. While in the U.S., it was still, I don't think it was still quite as common for women to go to university and things yeah. like that. Um, but it may have been a little bit more... Um, acceptable and normal than in Guatemala, where she was kind of used to being in the U.S. and then goes home and right. is like, wait, what? And from what I hear, her family was pretty, like, patriarchal and conservative and all well, those things. Well, then good things. for her for, like, but, going against that. Yeah, it's very clear to me that 
in everything that I've read about her, which, you know, you'll see as a recurring theme throughout her story, is that she has a very, very, very strong sense of justice. Like, yeah. And she could see that this wasn't fair. Yeah. It wasn't fair. It wasn't just. So she organized a group that lobbied for women to be included in higher education, and this kind of, like, lit her fire for social issues. So she kind of leaves her upbringing with her family and moves to... Mexico City, where she becomes a reporter for a Guatemalan newspaper. And she also wrote some really beautiful poetry. Like, if you get a chance, go ahead and, like, Google her poetry. Yeah. She has some... She was a great writer. Okay. It was really, um, really beautiful. So, there she met an artist named Angel de Leon. Mm, and Angel de Leon. Can you imagine? It's like Angel the Lion? Is that what that means? I don't know. De Leon sounds I, like the lion. It does. It does sound like that. I mean, um, ugh, So maybe. they they left Mexico City and they moved to New York City in mm-hmm. 1927. And in 1928, they had a daughter together. Oh. So during this time, the Depression was starting to kick off. It was getting into, like, full swing. And her husband was unemployed. A lot of people were unemployed during this time period. So Louisa and... I want everyone to keep in mind that Louisa grew up, again, high, 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 high class. Like, yeah. she could have lived her entire life in very a very comfortably. comfortable way yeah. if she had just kind of lived in that society world and stayed with her family in Guatemala. Right. But she goes to work because her husband is unemployed to support him and their daughter. And she How goes, was it easier for her to find a job than him? Well, she went to work as a seamstress. Oh, so, okay. That makes sense. Yeah. She went to work as a seamstress in Harlem's garment district. Okay. And she took notice of, like, the harsh working conditions that a lot of these mostly women were working under and mostly Latina women. Uh-huh. It was a lot of Latina women. They Probably were, hasn't changed much. Yeah. 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 They were working under very difficult circumstances, um, being paid very, very low wages, and it was unfair. It was very clearly unfair. So she starts to become actively involved or starts, again, it's unclear, different websites say different things, whether or not she started this or just became a very, very active member in a garment workers union with several other Latino activists. So she plans and participates in several strikes at this time. So she leads this movement to be like, you guys deserve rights. You guys deserve fair and equal wages and treatment. And we need to set a baseline expectation because this is bullshit. So yeah. um, so she does that. This is like a steamstress version of the Newsies in my head. She's amazing. Like, honestly, I think about how tired I am on the day-to-day. Isn't that what we my, say like, with all yes, of these? We're like, like, how do you get all this how? shit done? It's amazing. It's like, it's so hard for anyone to do anything. Like, to get up and go anywhere or do anything requires, like, so much work Well, but and also, effort. like, knowing, like, I know there are things in my life sometimes where I'm like, I'm going to have this conversation with this person, especially when it comes to, like, my bosses or people that I work for. Whereas, like, once you get there, you're like, you know, not today. Maybe yeah, not no, today. I, don't I don't have the do energy. It. I don't have the emotional energy yeah. to do this. But, so, I'm always amazed with people like this who are able to kind of just, like, move straight through it. Yeah. So... That was in 1938-ish. In ni- oh, sorry, 1928-ish. Okay. In 1930, the Warner Brothers she movie... She just had a baby. I'm sorry. You said 1928, yes. she had a baby, and she's already, like, Yes. She went to work, work right after shit. that. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know exactly when, but 
most of the articles say that she went to work to provide for her infant daughter, which means yeah. she must have been a baby still. Yeah. That's so, intense. I mean, mm-hmm. good for the husband, too, to be like, yeah, you go work. I'm going to take care of the kid. Well... We'll okay, keep, keep going. Sorry. Okay. In 1930, the Warner Brothers movie Under the Texas Moon was being protested as anti-Mexican by a group of Latinos led by a man named Gonzalo Gonzalez. Oh, my God. Gonzalo Gonzalez. These names are epic. <laughs> Police were brutalizing and, and, like, terrorizing the picketers mm-hmm. um, who were there to what I've read pretty... Um, non-violently gathering. Mm-hmm. They were picketing this film because they thought it was anti-Mexican. Yeah. And the police kind of came in with brute force. Yeah. And Gonzalez ended up being killed in this altercation with Fuck. police. So the murder sparked a pan-Latino protest in which Moreno participated, and she later told Burt Corona, who I don't know who that is, I think a reporter, that the experience, quote, motivated her to work on behalf of unifying the Spanish-speaking communities. Yes! So it's around this time that Luisa became an active member in the Communist Party, and she adopts the name Luisa Moreno... Uh, so as to dissociate her family from her political pos- positions okay. and labor activities because they were disapproving. Okay. So she kind of wanted, I think it's probably twofold. I think she wanted her to separate. Her family that's like back in Guatemala? Yes. Okay. So I think she wanted to kind of separate herself from them, probably. Yeah. And then also I think she wanted, because they were wealthy and influential, I think she wanted. Protect them? To Protect them in a way of, like, separating them from her. Yeah, that makes right? sense. Right, because they didn't agree with her political views. So right. she changes her name. I think that's a, name. A, actually a very kind... I think it's very kind. You know, yeah. of course, I wish that her family was supportive, but it's one of those things where it's like, well, I'm not going to change my beliefs even if you're not supportive, but I still love you, and I'm so going to make sure that you're okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in 1935... Moreno was hired by the American Federation of Labor, the AFL, uh, as a professional organizer. She then left her husband because he had become physically abusive. Oh, fuck this guy. Take right. Back everything and, I said. And, you know, given what we were just talking about, it wouldn't surprise me if her independence and her having a job when he doesn't have a job and having all Having a of job those and things, also being such a vocal member mm-hmm. of a community that's obviously not... Very popular. Yeah, his his masculinity was probably threatened. Yeah. And that was probably his fucked up way of feeling like a man. So she took her daughter and they settled in Florida where she unionized African Americans and Latino uh, cigar rollers. She joined con- she joined the Congress of Industrial Organizations, the CIO, and became a representative of the, and this is a mouthful, United Cannery Agricultural Packing and Allied Workers of America, U-C-A-P-A-W-A. Oh. It's too many. Oh. Um, and she became an editor of its first Spanish-language newspaper in Love 1940. Um, as a member of that U-C-A-P-A-W-A, <laughs> she helped organize workers... Um, at pecan shelling plants in San Antonio, Texas, and cannery workers in Los Angeles. She encouraged alliances between workers and different plants, and she constantly empowered female workers. Mm -hmm. She encouraged women to take leadership roles within union organizations. Okay. So she really worked hard to say, like, this isn't just, like, a man's position. Like, you guys should be moving up in these positions as well. Exactly. Um... In 1937, she settled in a San Diego area, 
And she used that, her home, like her personal home, as like a base for her activism. Cool. Two years later, in 1939, she was one of the main organizers of the Spanish-speaking People's Congress. I'm not going to try and say that in Spanish. It's here in Spanish. I'm not going to attempt it. But basically, like, the first Congress for Spanish-speaking people. That's great. Because... A lot of the activism that she did, even though she was Guatemalan, I see a lot of division sometimes within Latino communities. Yeah. And... She was... Well, what you were saying earlier is that she wanted to... Um, unify. Them, unify them. Have them all kind right. of work together for one common goal. From what I've read, I think she really recognized that Spanish-speaking people in this country, still the same as it is today mm-hmm. in many parts of the country, Spanish-speaking people are all kind of put under the same umbrella. They are. Even though Oh my god, in LA, if you're Hispanic, you're Mexican. Yeah. You know? Even though culturally, they could be very, very different. Yeah. So she kind of went to bat for all Spanish-speaking communities um, because she kind of was like, we all need to look out for each other. Yeah. And also went to bat for, like, African-American communities and other minority communities. Um... Because it was all, like, two sides of the same coin. Yeah. So. um, So, during this time, in around, like, 1939, she took a year off, and she traveled the U.S., and she visited Latino communities throughout the East Coast mm-hmm. and in the Southwest, and she kind of, like, started allying, like, these communities together. Yeah, well, you had also said that she lived in Mexico City at one point, right? Yes. So she had kind of, like, being from Guatemala, Mm -hmm. going to school in the U.S., living in Mexico City, and then now doing this traveling, she'd met a lot of these different people, and she was probably seeing the similarities in the discrimination. In their struggles. Yeah, Right, where it made sense to be, like, we, it's not going to serve. It's not us versus them. We have to be together. It's not going to serve our communities to infight and, like, fight each other. Yeah. Like, we have a common enemy, for lack of a better word, or we're we're being... um, And they they have a common goal. Right. A common goal, yeah. And we're being oppressed by the same people, so, like, we we need to band together. Allyship. Right, exactly. Um, In 1940, she was asked to speak before the American Committee for the Protection of the Foreign Born, and in her speech, which became known as the Caravan of Sorrow speech, she eloquently described the lives of migrant Mexican workers... Um, portions of it were reprinted in committee pamphlets, creating a legacy that lasted much longer than the duration of the speech itself. This is a copy and paste, Mm -hmm. clearly. (laughs) Um, in it, she stated, These people are not aliens. They have contributed their endurance, sacrifices, youth, and labor to the Southwest. Indirectly, they have paid more taxes than all the stockholders of California's industrialized agriculture, the sugar companies, and the large cotton interests that operate or have operated with the labor of Mexican workers. Which, I read this, and I was like, that could have been written yesterday. Yeah, that's something that, I remember, I've been watching a lot of comedy specials lately, so I don't remember who, whose it was, um, but somebody was talking about the stereotype that... Um, Hispanic people are lazy when in like reality like the stereotypes should be that they're the hardest working people out there. They're very hardworking and so when she says like these people are not aliens they have contributed to this economy exactly. far more than many natural born Americans. Because it's almost like I feel like people who have immigrated here 
feel such like they're almost more patriotic i feel like where and it's also like they work that they, much harder they worked to be here exactly so yeah. they have this work ethic ingrained into them that like i don't think i would ever understand because right. i've had the privilege of one being born here two being white like right. i can't have that same i don't have that same understanding of like no we started from nothing you know right or even if they didn't start from nothing you know because not all families who immigrated here from mexico or whatever started well, from I nothing well i don't i don't mean financially no. No, no, no. I mean, more but, like, you know, you're you're away from your family, you're starting absolutely. a new life, things like that. Absolutely. I know completely what you mean. Um, but yeah, they worked to get here. Like, that's the thing. Yeah. They worked to get here, and they're working hard being here. So it is disparaging. It's just a that's so wrong. Right. It's so disparaging to continue to call them aliens or, mm-hmm. or this or I that. Hate that term in general. Yeah. Um, Okay, so around the beginning of World War II, the defense industry became a major employer in the United States, especially in, like, San Diego, Southern California. So Mexicans were forbidden to work in the petroleum industry in shipyards and in other, like, war-related fields. Really? Yeah, and if they weren't able to work, they were relegated to, like, the lowest-paying jobs. Wouldn't you just, like, want that shit to get done? It, you would think so, but I'm guessing <laughs> maybe there was, like, this hierarchy of, like, we have these jobs, and so the jobs should go to white Americans, and Bullshit. rather than Mexican-Americans. These don't sound like jobs, too, that, like, white people would normally be like, sign me up, you know what I mean? Like Right, but it could be, like, white people needed work, and so they gave the work Whatever. to white people rather than to Mexican Fucking people who also people. needed work. Um So Moreno criticized the discrimination and pointed out that California has become, this is in quotes, California has become prosperous with the toil and sweat of Mexican immigration Uh attending to its number one industry, agriculture. Now they have sustained a true and lasting patriotism to a democratic country that refuses to give them citizenship or even basic civil rights. Uh, everything she says... Queen! It it gets me so riled up because literally everything she says we could say right now. Yeah. Like, the fact that, yes, in truth, California and other parts of America, large swaths of this country have become prosperous on the backs of people who we disparage constantly. Yeah. And, like, that's what she's saying. She's like, we have become prosperous using Mexican labor for our agriculture, and then you're going to treat them like shit. Yeah. Like, um, it's amazing. Okay. In 1942, Moreno became involved in... This is is fascinating. You'll like this. Um, (laughs) I like everything so far, but continue. Moreno became involved in the Sleepy Lagoon murder trial. (gasps) And... So basically, this trial was, that was the name it was given, Sleepy Lagoon Murder, in the Los Angeles newspapers because it was used to describe the death of Jose uh, Galadro Diaz, who was discovered unconscious and dying on a road near near a swimming hole known as the Sleepy Lagoon. And when he was taken in the ambulance and he died shortly afterwards, Mm -hmm. the autopsy showed that he was inebriated because he had been at a party and that his skull had been fractured, and it may have been caused by repeated falls from being drunk and falling a lot, or, or a car accident. Like, that was the kind of trauma that they were looking at. Okay, but what was it really? Well, we don't know what it was really. Okay. It was never well, it was solved. A, it was a murder trial, though, you said. Yes, because um, the LAPD was quick to arrest 17 Mexican-American <sighs> young people 
um, a lot of them very young, like teenagers and early 20s, okay. young men, um, and they didn't really have any sufficient evidence to back up that these 17, 17 men, you arrested 17 men without really any evidence to back up that they yet, murdered this person. With, like, Ted Bundy, they have, like, a hundred possible people yet didn't arrest right. anyone until they knew for sure. Right. Okay, yeah, fine, whatever. So the trial ended um, on January 13th, 1942, and nine of the 17 defendants were convicted of second-degree murder. Oh, my God! And nine? And sentenced to serve time in San Quentin. Uh-huh. What? And the rest of, the rest of them, so nine and, what does that leave, eight? Yeah. So the other eight... Eight. Good fast math, Keegan. Thank you very much. <laughs> it is very hard for me. Um, the other suspects were charged with a lesser offense, and they were still incarcerated in the what? Los Angeles jail. Yeah, that's insane. So Moreno worked to help reverse these convictions. Yes, and uh, the convictions were reversed on appeal in 1944. So how long were they in jail then? So they were in jail for about two years. Oh, yeah. So Poor babies. Yeah, yeah, it's ridiculous. But I mean, this is the kind of thing she was like, not nah, like fucking not on my watch. What about the other nine that were convicted? Do you know what happened? No, to them? I think all of the I think all of them were um were overturned. They all, oh. I don't know exactly all the details, so right. it may have taken some longer than others or right. I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure for the people who were convicted, it took a little bit longer. But they considered these. You know that song "Zoot Suit Riot" that yeah. you hear. Like that was a real thing that happened. The yeah. Zoot Suit Riots, and they considered this to be a precursor to what happened there in 1943. Oy. So during this time, she also investigated abuses on the part of servicemen in San Diego. She also investigated. Um, Police brutality throughout Los Angeles mm. towards minorities in particular. Are you sure this wasn't like 2018? Right? Particularly towards Latinos, but also, I mean, towards all ethnic minorities. Like, yeah. she was very active in that. Um, in 1947, she married a man named Gray Bemis, and he was a Navy veteran from Nebraska, and, and he had been a delegate from, to the Socialist Party of America. He shared her interest in civil rights of Mexican-Americans, and he took a lot of the pictures that you will see of her. Like, he went with, like, on events and took a lot of pictures of her. So much better than the first husband. Yes. So much nicer. Very supportive. Glowed up. Yes. In the late 1940s, she established the San Diego chapter of the Mexican Civil Rights Committee, did speeches to chapters of Young Progressive America. She warned that racial tensions and communist hysteria provoked racial profiling, stereotyping, and police brutality against Mexican-Americans and other ethnic minorities. Also true. We see this going throughout, like, into um, Angela Davis, who was also a member of the Communist Party. Yeah. And you saw them kind of wield that against uh, ethnic minorities in general. The people who would have been most drawn to communism because it was the only way they were ever going to get any kind of fair shake. Exactly. So in um, the 1950s, INS, which is Immigration and National Nationalization Service, conducted Operation Wetback, which makes me feel very bad. Um. Uh, and they were trying to forcibly deport Mexicans and Mexican Americans. Why do they call it Wetback? I don't fucking know because it's a slur for Mexicans. It's really fucked up. Ew. Um, so the operation targeted labor leaders in particular. While she was considered like polite and law-abiding, her activism earned her enemies. Yep. She and her husband had begun receiving threatening letters um, for their work against police brutality. Mm-hmm. She was labeled um, a dangerous alien and Ugh. 
ended up being deported for for her activity. They said it was for her activities as a communist. Okay. Uh, but it was probably for all of it. She yeah. was kind of railing against police brutality. Yeah. On November 30th, 1950, Moreno and her husband left the United States for Juarez, uh, slowly making their way to Mexico City. Her warrant for deporta- deportation had been issued on the grounds that she had once been a member of the Communist Party. Yeah. Eventually, the couple settled in Guatemala, but were forced to flee when, in 1954, CIA, a CIA-sponsored coup ousted progressive president. Um, I'm not going to try and say... Or I am. Okay. I'm going to say... It's ha- all good. Just ha- say it. Hakabo Arbenz Guzman? We're going to uh-huh. say that. We're going to go with that. So at least you tried. I tried. I tried my best. I'm so sorry to everyone who speaks Spanish. Um, After the triumph of the 1959 Cuban Revolution, Moreno spent time teaching on the island. She later returned to Guatemala, where she was interviewed by several historians before she died in November of 1992 at the age of 85. Oh, right after, or right before you were born, right? Before I was born. Yeah, yeah, 1992. Darn it, just missed her. I was two years old. Um... So yeah, this is a woman I'd never known about before, and she did That's like my so part of this whole segment. She did so much. Like I'm astounded that I've never learned about this person before. Yeah. Like honestly, we should have a Mexican History Month. Like why not? Why don't we? Like right? I mean, I understand why we have a Black History Month. It's so necessary yeah. given the role of Black Americans in this country and yeah. how all of that went down, but. Mexican-Americans in particular and other Spanish-speaking minorities and all minorities in general were a melting pot. But Mexican-Americans in particular, and maybe I feel this way because I live in Southern California, are such an instrumental part of our economy and our lives and our country. Um, This is stuff that we should be learning about. Yeah, they they deserve to have the spotlight shown on them as well. Yeah, absolutely. And she wasn't a Mexican American; she was Guatemalan. But but she, she stood up on, for all Spanish speaking people. Yeah, and and in particular Mexican people. Like yeah. she really took that as a focus because this and has been a never how, ending like, battle. That's just like unselfish she is too. Because I feel like a lot of times people will fight for their own like race or where their communities. From. Yeah, yeah. And so for her to be able to kind of open it up to a more broader scale and see how they really are also similar, I think is a really beautiful thing. And I really love it that, for me, one thing that I really loved about her was that she did make a conscious decision to be like, you know what, I could have this life of privilege and comfort, and I'm not going to do that. Instead, I'm going to fight for the rights of all people. Like, because she really fought for all minorities and all women. Like, you know, she really fought at those, like, intersections of, like, race and class. Love it. Yeah. So, yeah. Louisa Moreno. I have to pee again. Okay. (laughs) Okay, now that my bladder is once again emptied... <laughs> what, I, what you got for me? <laughs> what, what, what do I got for you? Okay, <laughs> so I am going to be talking about one of the early suffragettes. Okay. Someone who I feel um, is kind of pushed to the wayside when we talk about people like Susan B. Anthony, Katie Stanton, and a lot of others. These Fantastic. People. Um, she was very much in the mix of all of these people, but is not talked about as much and is not celebrated. And there's another really big reason why I'm talking about this person, but I'm not going to give it away, and I'm going to try not to give it away until the <gasps> end. Mystery. It's a mystery. Okay, fantastic. I and like it's so it. funny. So her name is Matilda Jocelyn Gage. Oh, Matilda! Exactly. So you when know I how sent, I feel. When I sent myself the 
notes, I just, like, labeled it Matilda, and I was like, the kitty! Oh, man. Yeah, so <laughs> for those of you who don't know, my cat's name is Matilda. Matilda, and it was almost my name. So precious. I was almost Matilda. I love it. My uncle and aunt still call me Matilda to this day. I like it. Um, So she was born Matilda Electa Jocelyn in Cicero, New York, on March 24th, 1826, to Dr. Hezekiah... And Helen, or Leslie, Jocelyn. Hezekiah is too much for a baby. <laughs> no, Hezzy. you shouldn't name your child Hezekiah. Like. Hez. Or Kaya. Why not? My name is fucking Madigan. Everything goes. Madigan's okay. Everything goes in this world. Okay, so her father was of New England and revolutionary ancestry, and he was a liberal thinker. New England and what? Revolutionary ancestry. Oh, okay, okay. Is that, is that sure. Right? Okay. I mean, yeah. That's just what it said. Okay. <laughs> he was a liberal thinker and an early abolitionist. So their home, her home growing up, and actually her home um, as she grew older, I'm not, I think it was the same house, but I'm not sure. They were both um, one of the safe zones for the Underground Railroad. Nice. So she um, actually says that one of her proudest acts is, this is a quote, sorry. One of the proudest acts of my life, one that I look back upon with the most satisfaction, is that when Reverend Mr. Logwin, who is the Syracuse conductor of the Underground Railroad, went to the village of my residence to ascertain the names of those upon whom runaway slaves might depend for aid and comfort on the way to Canada, I was one of the two solitary persons who gave him their names. Myself and one gentleman of Fayetteville were the only two persons who dared thus publicly defy the law of the land and for humanity's sake rendered ourselves liable to fine and imprisonment in county jail for the crime of feeding the hungry, giving shelter to the oppressed and helping the black slaves onto freedom. Yes, Matilda. Yes, she's great. So, um, as a as a child, she was taught by her parents and later attended Clinton Liberal Institute. So she was raised in a very like liberal, progressive, progressive mindset. She married Henry Hill Gage in 1845 and had five children: Charles, who died in infancy; Helen, Thomas Clarkson, Julia, and Maud. Wait, is that the second time I've heard or her mother's name was Helen? Her mother's name was Helen, and then she named her daughter, her daughter Helen. Helen. Yes. That's so sweet. I know, right? So precious. So, like I said, she and Henry were also very active in the anti-slavery movement, and their home was part of the Underground Railroad. Again, like what you said, some um, articles say different things. Yes, so of I don't course. know if it was both or one or the other or what it was, but both of them were very um, into the abolitionist movement, which, as we know, eventually can very much move Tons into of the intersection. Yeah. Yes. So she actually organized hospital supplies for Union soldiers as well during the Civil War, which is great. Which is great. She faced prison time for her actions associated with the Underground Railroad under the Fugitive Slave Law of 1850, which criminalized assistance to escaped slaves. Doesn't look like she faced any time, though. Being unable to attend the Seneca Falls Convention, Matilda first spoke about the women's rights and suffrage at the National Women's Rights Convention in 1852. She was the co-founder of the National Women's Suffrage Association and was the president from for one year from 1875 to 76. How do we not know about her? Like, um, this is amazing honestly, to me. No, the more I talk about her, you're going to be like, what the fuck? So she served for president for a year and then served in various positions in the association for the next 20 years. And you're going to find out what she does after that. Just, just you fucking wait. <laughs> just you wait. Okay. During the 1876 convention, she successfully argued against a group of police who claimed the association was holding a legal assembly. They left without pressing charges. She was like, huh, wait. She was convincing then. <laughs> she's a fucking badass. I yeah, love Yeah, she's woman. a force. So, Gage was close friends with Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton, was, but was considered much more radical. 
she joins. Good. Her. Yeah, right? We exactly. know them. You should be more radical than I them. know, exactly. Uh, she joins Stanton's revising committee to write the Women's Bible, which challenged the traditional religious orthodoxy that women should be subservient to men. They wish to promote a radical... God, my fucking iPad keeps fucking me up every time I touch it. Okay. They wish to promote a radical liberating theology and stressed self-development. She was a firm believer in the separation of church and state. But more on that later. Okay. Okay. In 1878, she bought the Ballot Box, a monthly journal of Toledo, Ohio, Suffrage Association, and she turned it into the National Citizen and Ballot Box. A quote says, it's a special object will be to secure national protection to women citizens and the exercise of their right to vote. It will, oppo- it will oppose class legislation of whatever form. Women of every class, condition, rank, and name will find this paper their friend. She was primary editor for three years, producing essays on a wide range of issues. Each edition bore the words, pen is mightier than the sword, and included columns about prominent women in history and female inventors, which kind of reminds me of this podcast a lot. Yes. Um, She wrote with dry wit and humor with well-honed sense of irony. Do you ever wonder, I I mean, I know I've brought this up before when we've talked about um, women that we may not have heard of. Yeah. Do you ever wonder like what they would be in 2019? This woman like I'm going to I'm going to go into more why I chose this person at the end. And when you know why and like other things that I know, mhm. She's she fucking rage because people right now. people like this I'm just like well and people like Louisa Moreno uh-huh. I'm just like the things uh-huh. you're capable of. Like uh-huh. if you're capable of doing this whenever you might not have the same amount of opportunity as, yeah. like, you and I have, this and you're capable of this. This literally dedicated her entire life. That's like, amazing. Everything she did in her life was for the right to vote and for the equality of all people. That's it's awesome. insane. So, to give an example of her, like, sense of irony, when writing about laws which allowed men to will his child to a guardian unrelated to their mother, she wrote, It is sometimes better to be a dead man than a live woman. Oh. <laughs> I, mean, I mean. I mean. Not wrong. After com- after campaigning of the New York State Women's Suffrage Association under Gage, the state of New York granted female suffrage for electing members of school boards. At the polls for this, she ensured every woman in the area of Fayetteville, New York, had the opportunity to vote by writing letters, making sure they were aware of their rights, and sitting at polls to make sure none of them were turned away. So she's like, no, 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 you all have to know that you can vote, and why, and I'm going to sit there and make sure nobody is Nobody harasses you. Yeah. In, in 1871, Matilda was part of a group of 10 women who attempted to vote. She reportedly stood and argued with polling officials on behalf of each I woman. I love her. I yeah. want her to be my best friend. Right? Exactly. In 1873, she defended Susan B. Anthony when she was placed on trial for having voted in the election, making a compelling legal and moral arguments. In 1874, she became an elector at large for Belva Lockwood, who was a lawyer active in women's rights and suffrage movement, and the Equal Pay Equal Rights Party. When the NWSA, the National Women's Suffrage Association, merged with the more conservative American Women's Suffrage Association, she established the Women's National Liberal Union. So, she she was instead in support of general social reform, where the NWSA were conservative suffragists who believed the right to vote would achieve temperance and Christian yes, goals. Yes, she was like. No, 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 we're not merging. We should do an episode about the link between the suffragette mu- movement and the temperance movement. We should do that because, this month. Yeah, because while, um, listen, if you did anything in favor of women's suffrage and or abolition, 
at my hat is off to you. That's fucking amazing. And we're super thankful. But the link between those and the temperance movement yeah. are weird and unsettling. It really is. And she and she really saw that. So she tried to prevent the merger between the AWSA and the NWSA, believing that it went against the separation of church and state. She says, believing this country to be a political and not religious organization, yes. the editor of The National Citizen will use all her influence of voice and pen against the, quote, Sabbath laws and uses of Bible school and pre- eminently against an amendment which all shall introduce God in the Constitution. And that was in an essay called God in the Constitution Part 2. She believed that the church was central to the process of men subjugating women, a process where a church doctrine and authority was used to portray women as morally inferior and inherently sinful. Mm. So she was very against Christianity. It's so upsetting to me when I hear phrases like that because basically some man at one point was just like, women give me boners and it yeah. makes me uncomfortable. <laughs> so they must be sinful inherently <laughs> as people. No, that's what that is. That's I what know, that is. but just like, the way you said it I'm was uncomfortable because these women are making me these feel women sexual feelings. give me boners. I don't like it. I don't it. like it. I don't like it at so all. So they must be the problem. In <laughs> Back off. <laughs> In 1893, she published Woman, Church, Woman, Church, and State, a book that showed ways Christianity had oppressed women and enforced patriarchal systems. Amen. While not Christian, she still searched for religious guidance, and in the last few years of her life, she became a theosophist. Theosophist. Cool. I have no idea what that means. They believe in kind of like metaphysical realms and like reincarnation and okay. other physical beings beyond yourself. Sure. Things like that. In the 1870s, Matilda spoke out against the brutal and unfair treatment of Native Americans. She was adopted into the Wolf Clan of Mohawk Nation and given the name, I'm so sorry I'm going to say this wrong, they spelled it with lots of, like, dashes. So, ka ran which means sky carrier, <laughs> no idea. which was inspired by the Six Nation Iroquois Confederacy's form of government where the power between sexes was nearly equal. So I kind of went back here because I've been like in the 1890s. This is the 1870s. Mm -hmm. um, but that that was very much a, um, a baseline for her going forward. She was very inspired by the Six Nation Iroquois Confederacy in all that she did. And she was very much um, welcomed into that community, which sure. was amazing. Matilda was against abortion, but not in a traditional way. Because when I started reading this, I was like, hold on. Oh, no. So <laughs> well, but she, also, what year are we talking about? This is, uh, like, the 1880s, 90s. It, yeah, that yeah. makes sense for but the 1880s, her 90s. the reason is very interesting to me, because I've never heard this before. So she believed that abortion was a selfish desire of husbands to maintain their wealth by reducing their offspring. Oh. Believing the fault was not solely on women. Because she did believe in birth control. Okay. And I'm going to tell you how I know that in a second. But, okay, but if you're, if you agree with birth control, why would you be against abortion? She believes that, uh, from what I understand, she believes that abortion, um, I think she didn't agree with it because she didn't believe in the way that it was being used. But wouldn't birth control, couldn't birth control be used in the same way? I mean, exactly. I don't anyway, understand. Anyway, sorry, it. yeah, go ahead. No, I don't understand. That was the one thing for me where I was like, okay, whatever. But also, yeah, you have to keep the time in, in mind. 1880, yeah. 1890. Also, how many safe abortions were being performed in 1880? Right. So, so I can see it. Okay. Now I'm getting into why I'm talking about this person. Matilda's youngest, her name was Maud. 
met L. Frank Baum. Oh, of course. We talked about her before. I know. Which is why I was waiting for a light bulb to go no, off. No, it did not go off at all. But I yes. mentioned her in other episodes. I did because okay. I pointed out to you that she was relate that they were related. Yes. That was his mother-in-law. So yes. Yes. So her youngest Maud met L. Frank Baum in 1881. Maud, I love that. Too. I know, right? I love that. So name. cute. At first, Matilda was mortified when Maud wanted to marry a writer slash actor like Frank, but when Maud announced that she would marry Frank anyway. She basically was like, then I'm not going to talk to you ever again. And Matilda starts laughing because she realizes the emphasis on all individuals making up their own minds was not lost on her strong daughter. That's perfect. Yeah, you raised her to be that way. So I just finished this great book. I'm doing this thing in 2019 where I am writing all the books I've read. I think I'm on book six or seven. I'm reading two books right now. So I think I'm on like six and seven right now so far in 2019. Very proud of myself. So I just read this great book. My me too. Mom, my mom, amazing. Thank you. Read right the end of February. Bought this for me and didn't tell me. I knew it was a book because she's like, it's not out yet. And I'm like, it's a book. And she's like, I'm very excited for you to read it. It's a book called Finding Dorothy by Elizabeth Letts. And it's about Maud um, from childhood through when the making of The Wizard of Oz and her part in that and making sure that her husband's story stayed alive. So a big part of this story is also about her mother. So the more I read about their relationship and how it... Um, provoked Maud to be the woman, mother, wife, person she was, the Mm -hmm. more I wanted to learn about Matilda. So she, Maud was like a total tomboy. Her mom gave her pants when she was little because she was so rough and tumble. She's like, you can't run around in those petticoats. Here's some pants. And gave her her older brother's hand-me-downs. You know, so she was a very, like, open-minded mother. So that's why when Maude was like, I'm going to marry this man, she was in Cornell University. And one thing Matilda always wanted was to be a doctor. And she was unable to go to university. So for her to have a daughter who was at Cornell was a huge deal. And Matilda basically was like, I don't like school. It's not for me. I love learning, but not in these pretenses. Sure. I want to marry this man. A lot of people feel that way. Exactly. She's like, I want to marry this man. And her mom was like, there's no way you're leaving college. But as soon as Matilda, or as soon as Maude kind of put her foot down and was like, well, then I'm not going to talk this to you anymore. This is what I want. This is what I need. This is what I'm going to do. Matilda was suddenly like, oh my God, I've created a monster. Like, everything that I've taught, you're totally like... I, I do feel like whatever that thing is, that's like your child... Like the, the greatest payback is like your child growing up to be just like you. Yeah. I can totally see that because I could totally see myself raising like a little headstrong yep. kid. And like, that's awesome until yeah. it comes back but in your like, direction. <laughs> as soon as it swings back to you, yeah. you know? So what's really interesting... Um, Um, is that a lot of people say that Matilda was a very strong influence for The Wizard of Oz, and she was actually the person who was reading and listening to all these stories that Frank came up with for his children and things like that, and she goes, like, you need to write that down. Um, She unfortunately passed away from a stroke in 1898, um, and The Wizard of Oz came out in 1900, but he was very inspired by his mother-in-law. And actually, The Wizard of Oz is considered, in a lot of ways, a feminist text. Yes. It was banned a lot, especially mm-hmm. for um, witches. Her, well, um, they say that Matilda that's always... That's the episode. It, we talked about her in our witch episode. Yep. Yes. Well, Matilda always told Maude to be a good witch. Yes. She always said, witch is not a bad thing. 
be a good witch. Because it was the first time, if I remember correctly from our witches episode, The Wizard of Oz was really the first time that witches were pre- portrayed as being possibly benevolent. Like yes. good, that there, good or that bad there could witches. be good and bad. Yeah. Also, the uh, main character, there's some speculation. There is a Dorothy Gage, but she didn't live very long. It was um, Maud's brother's child. There's also um, her sister's child that they think it may have been inspired by. So the inspiration for Dorothy is murky. The other inspiration could possibly be that Maude always wanted a daughter, um, but it never happened, that kind of thing. So, um, But Dorothy was also, she was basically the ringleader of these three male characters, whether they be animal made of tin or a scarecrow. She was kind of the lead of these like male characters, right. very headstrong. And that was another reason why it was banned, because they thought it was filling girls' heads with all of these ideas. So whether or not he had these ideals before... Uh, marrying Maude and becoming close to Matilda. Matilda did live with them um, for the last few years of her life, and they were very, very close. Um, I find it really interesting how her inspiration has kind of um, somehow made its way unknowingly into everybody's minds. We may not know who Matilda Jocelyn Gage was, but we all know what the Wizard of Oz is. So without us really even knowing who she was and what her background is. We've absorbed is. some we've, of her. We've absorbed what her ideology is. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the coolest thing Absolutely. about her. Absolutely. You know, like well, that's something for me that I was like, oh, I mean, and her accompl- I mean, her accomplishments are so are un- and there's incredible. More. It's just upsetting to me that her accomplishments are not being recognized yeah. for like as being as great as uh, I understand like Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony went on to do other things yeah. that then established them in a different way or they participated more in these organizations that are yeah. kind of seen as the highlight organizations for um, the feminist movement. And mm-hmm. so I understand that. But it is I love doing this series where we talk about forgotten feminist favorites because it really highlights to me the number of women and not, I mean, not just women. I imagine eventually there are lots of feminist men we can also yeah. talk about, but like women in general who are vital and essential to these movements that we never hear about, never ever hear about. Yeah. And they deserve this recognition because imagine devoting your, not that you do it for the recognition, okay? Yeah. Like you're not doing it for the recognition, but also like imagine devoting your entire life. She lived her whole life to see the right to vote and never saw it. And that's. That's crazy. Like, yeah. you know, like that person deserves to be recognized exactly. for like, you did all the shit. And I did forget to add. So when we were talking about the merger between the AWSA and the NWSA, I must have forgotten to put this in my final notes, but she then created the Women's National Liberals Union in 1890. I think you said that. Did I say that? I can't remember. Maybe not. But if you didn't, you did. So she basically now. was like, I don't like either of these groups. I'm going to make my own. Um, going back to <laughs> later in life, so like I said, she died from a stroke. Um, she actually died in the bomb home in Chicago in 1898. She was cremated, but there is a memorial headstone in Fayetteville Cemetery, which is where her family home is, that bears her slogan. There is a word sweeter than mother, home, or heaven. The word is liberty. Oh, I know. <laughs> want to get know. that tattooed on my body. I know, right? She was um, indicted into the uh, Women's Hall of Inducted. Fame. What did I say? Indicted. Oh, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Shut the fuck up. She was inducted into the um, 
Women's Hall of Fame. I don't have this written down. Again, I don't know how this missed my notes. In 1995, I do remember. And um, there was something interesting. Someone had coined the Matilda effect. Again, didn't write this down, but I remember it from my notes. Similar to the Oprah effect? Uh, Similar, yeah. It was kind of the opposite of what I believe was called the Maxwell effect, which was kind of the um, importance of male scientists, where the Matilda effect was kind of um, showing the importance of female scientists. She was very much into, like, sciences, which is why religion didn't always like Mesh sink well. in with her mm-hmm. but she was a very spiritual person and always wanted to like know answers for different things right like, she was also very holistic she didn't believe in like regular medicines where one of her daughters actually had a very strong addiction um she when she was an old woman actually they had put her on heroin for some of her cardiac problems yeah. before they knew that would be an issue but common it shit was, back then yeah but it was only because she really wasn't able to have much say in it but she was a very holistic person um believed in you know the nurturing and sanctity of her body and her health and things like that and she's just utterly fascinating and i i read a historical fiction novel about this family um which made me do a lot of research But reading even a historical fiction novel was really interesting for me to learn about these people as fully formed human beings. Absolutely. um, And knowing kind of their downfalls in their family lives and also where they really impacted everybody around them. And this woman literally, in the way it was written in this book, spent all her time writing. You could make a ruckus. Like, they would tell stories about when Maude and Frank were dating and they'd be out in the parlor and all of a sudden Maude was like, fire, fire! And Frank starts freaking out and they run outside and, like, Matilda hasn't left her writing desk. She's just, like, in it. So she was another one of those women who just never really stopped She lived for her work. She lived for it. And she also was so, like... You know, I think we think a lot of times as feminists being these, like, old hags, especially when we think of, like, the suffragists. You know, I don't think we do, but a lot of people right. do. Right, yeah. But she was also, like, very motherly and wanted the kids that she had to grow up with things better than she had, but also with the same ideologies that she yeah. had and worked very hard at that. And yeah. I think that's something that's really admirable. For you know, sure. She, you know, she had the kids and she made sure, like, if I'm going to have these kids, I'm going to make sure that they make a difference in the world as Absolutely. well. And look at... Look at the legacy that she has through her son-in-law. I think it's just kind of something that's and she was an amazing. influence on him. You know, such, like, such an amazing an influence, influence, which is amazing. Which is why she deserves to be recognized because we know who L. Frank Baum is. But you do five minutes of research and you'll see Matilda's name. Right? You know? Absolutely. Yeah, I, I hope love. You guys thought I, that was as interesting I did. as I did. No, I okay, did. And I, I think that these episodes. This is what makes these episodes interesting. Is that like these people who. I mean, when we talk about Luisa Moreno, like, her influence completely, absolutely changed the landscape or, like, what it looks like for, like, labor unions in the United States or specifically with, like, Latino communities or Spanish-speaking communities. And then you've got, like, Matilda, who was, like, such an instrumental part of the um, suffragette movement as well as being such an instrumental part of one of the greatest literary classics to ever exist. And that's the thing for me, like, you know, I'm one of those people where I truly believe that my calling as a a feminist on this planet is to then educate the next generation and my knowledge and hoping that they can then take that and evolve it in something else. So the fact that she was so influential for a story that's literally told all the time and everybody knows it, to me, is something that's, like, really beautiful and timeless. Yeah. Yeah. 
So, <laughs> yeah. we hope that you guys enjoyed this episode yeah. um, as much as we do. If you enjoy our Forgotten Feminist Favorite series, please let us know. Like, we would love we to get that sent, kind of feedback. We just sent a message from somebody about a poet she was interested in. Yes, yeah. So definitely, if, if you guys have suggestions on people yeah. we could do, or if this is just something that you enjoy hearing, if you love being, like, educated and learning about people, I love you know, doing research, because in the beginning Mm -hmm. when we decided to do this series, I had a lot of people in mind that I'm like, oh, they may not have heard about this person, but I know about that person. And now we're in a place on this series where I'm like, like, uh, we have to learn more. Yeah, Yeah. I'm learning about people who I didn't know about before. So if you are enjoying that, or if you have suggestions, uh, please email us and let us know. If you know a lot about these people, like we said in the beginning of the episode, and you want to give us little anecdotes or correct something that we have said in this episode, please do that. You can email us at neighborhoodfeminist at gmail.com. You can also get us on Instagram at angryneighborhoodfeminist. You can find us on Twitter if you'd like to. We are at Twitter at Yamf Podcast, Y-A-N-F Podcast. And you can also find us on Facebook. We have a business page and a group page. And you can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Please rate and review or us there. Or on Facebook, on our business page. Or on Facebook, yes. We absolutely. like reviews everywhere. It's everywhere. all good, you it guys. It warms our heart. It makes us feel very good and special. Ugh, it makes me excited. Yes. Best part of my day. So mm-hmm. sad, but not. So, you guys, thank you so much for joining us on our first week of Women's History Month. Yes. We obviously have some really exciting things that we're kind of thinking about and yes. figuring out. And we love these planned months. At least I really love these planned months. It does give you a good focus. It does. It really <laughs> does. So, thank you so much for going along with us on this episode. With all that being said, we encourage you to, to rage, rage on. on. Bye. What does feminism mean to you? During Women's History Month, come explore feminism and how it's playing out in real life with season two of Thread the Needle, a monthly podcast. I'm your host, Donna Schill. I use my background in journalism and draw on women's life experiences to add to the conversation on topics that matter to fellow feminists like you. Now in its second season, listen to new episodes each month as we explore finding yourself through divorce, battling call-out culture, questioning our ideas about masculinity, and discovering why girls' confidence plummets in their preteens. Guests include Stephanie Kuntz, historian and author of Marriage, a History, April White, author of Divorce Colony, and Loretta Ross, professor on white supremacy and call-out culture at Smith College. Listen to Thread the Needle on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.